Hello and welcome to Agora Politics. This is your host, Alex Mershak. Today I'm speaking with Raven Connolly, who hosts Socratic Speed Dating and Sensemaking Sessions at the STOA. You can find out more about Raven's work at thestoa.ca and follow Raven on Twitter at spiral underscore virus. We talk about the acceleration of trends in online dating and romance due to the pandemic, the institution of marriage and non-monogamy, influencer culture, mimesis, and sexual inequality, declining fertility in the West, and technological substitutes for intimacy, the value of organized religion, the Bible and Western culture, life around a common calendar, and the decision to choose love. And now, I give you Raven Connolly. So I'm here with Raven Connolly. Raven uh, hosts Socratic Speed Dating over at the STOA and is professionally in love. <laughs> Raven, uh, welcome welcome to the show. Thank you. <laughs> it's good to be here. So what do I ask the professionally in love? Yeah. Well, for starters, uh, what, what do you mean by that? Because I see that in your Twitter bio and uh, I have some ideas about what it might mean. I think it means more than one thing, but what do you think it means? Hmm. Well, it's like, to me, it's like professionally in love, uh, not professionally in love. So it's like, a. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think that for me, it, that's an invocation of multiple different aspects of myself as a person. I, I have a tendency to fall in love with things, uh, and people very, uh, easily. And I also feel that I, have an understanding of what that kind of roller coaster looks like. I also have a an interest in love and sex and marriage, and so uh, that's kind of the maybe the professional, um, you know, title that I've I've placed on my on my Twitter bio. Uh, so those are some, you know, things that kind of connect to that idea. But I, I'm I'm not exactly sure what it means. <laughs> If I had to be perfectly honest with you. Um, but I, I think also it's about an outlook of life on a deeper level of seeking to see things to be in love with, to see beauty and uh, to be fascinated, to be curious, to be drawn in to things that are other which is essentially what that in love is. It's that um, energy that kind of takes you out of the anxiety of confronting the other and draws you in and gets you in, in investigating into um, something that may be strange or mysterious or unusual. So uh, those are kind of some of the things uh, about that. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting um, disposition to have, and it's an interesting way to present yourself. Um, and uh, I, I agree. I think it does. I think, I think there are more than one, there's more than one meaning there. Um, so, Let's talk about your work at the STOA. You host these, what are they called, Socratic speed dating sessions um, over at the STOA, which is more like a sort of philosophical sense-making collective. Um, what, what are you doing there, and uh, how do you think about that work? Sure. So I started doing Socratic speed dating 
um, after talking with with Peter Lindbergh very early in the in the pandemic about how to bring communities together in different kinds of ways using this new medium. I'll just I guess would call Zoom the medium because it mm-hmm. Zoom Zoom gives us uh, certain kinds of tools for for you know bringing people together um, constraints and also uh, provides different kinds of uh, opportunities than other platforms and. The, the concept was kind of built on an idea that Peter had tried out in person in Toronto, which was a speed dating, philosophical speed dating. So dating is a little bit tongue in cheek because there wasn't any type of like explicit, you know, romantic necessity in these arrangements. Um, it was more of the process of getting people into dyads um, from different places, from different backgrounds and following the speed dating structure where you have a short period of time where you're randomly matched with another person in a dyad. And there's a, there's a question or a prompt that's supposed to kind of initiate um, you into a quick conversation. And then you get brought back to the main room and do it again. So I would craft, you know, these questions, or sometimes we would source from the collective intelligence of the group uh, and, end up having these like series of short um, mixing kind of uh, events. That, that, was the, that was the general format, yeah. And were those going on before the pandemic? They weren't, no. Um, Peter did try it out uh, in Toronto, like, like I said, but it didn't work very well at that point. And he thought that maybe it would work better online. And it was um, successful. I mean, there were, you know, ups and downs for when, you know, the people were there, but yeah, definitely it was, it was, um, gained popularity and people ended up coming back. And, uh, the, the format changed over time too, because people wanted more time in the rooms. (laughs) So it became like (laughs) Socratic long dating. (laughs) Um, but I, I think for me, what made me so interested in that specific format is one of the limitations of um, the kind of either the podcast structure of socializing or what Peter's doing at the STOA, where it's a live event, but you're still communicating in a constrained way with the people in, in the rest of the room. And there was all of these people coming together and there wasn't any of these like corners or like, you know, the back of the room at an event where you like, you know, you pick up like a little pastry or something and you see someone and you talk to them, you know, there weren't any of these like in-between spaces to really catch somebody and get to know what they were thinking about. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to create that kind of space, that like liminal space, you know, in the hallways between lectures, that kind of thing. So that's part of why I was interested in hosting Socratic speed dating. And I also got the opportunity to, to meet a lot of people and, um, talk to them. So do you think, a- do you think the relationships of the members who attended were enhanced or carried on over after that, after those sessions, or do you know of that? Any examples? You know, yeah. I mean, I, 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 um, I personally have carried relationships over. I think other people have as well, at least just from what I observe. Um, and I think a lot of people, uh, they, started to get more involved in the STOA and Socratic speed dating may have been the on-road like for them. 
But for the Stoa, there was a lot of different ways in which people kind of came to it and then started getting involved in more of, of what's going on in the Stoa. So, and now they have a Discord channel, which allows a little bit more of the um, in-between communicating um, that we didn't have before when uh, the, the Stoa was just starting. Right. And um, so do you think that the obviously the the whole lockdowns in the covid era has been a huge disruption to the way that many of aspects of our lives are are lived normally but do you think that the trends that have been amplified by this crisis are likely to continue or continue to be enhanced uh whenever this is over um you mean in the in the case of dating and specifically yes yeah yeah i mean i i think that COVID seems to have accelerated a lot of trends that were already the case. Uh, people seeking, you know, relationships with people through online mechanisms. It's interesting to me, though, because on the one hand, um, people basically engaging in parasocial kind of romantic sexual relationships, let's say through a platform like OnlyFans or um, like through even through Twitter, like having, you know, simping dynamics, right? You like have, you know, certain accounts that you like to follow and um you get this kind of uh sense of intimacy from from let's say a woman or who whose content that you that you like. And um that that type of thing I think is is likely to stay and become more of an issue, mostly because there's a deadlock. Both men and women are kind of stranded. Um, and don't know how to find each other and don't know how to communicate across, um, cultural divides. And it's, I don't know. I mean, the thing about atomization is that you're kind of an, you're on, you're on, you're on your own Island and there's not a lot of ways of figuring out what's happening on other people's islands and the coordination problems, um, start to become felt in the most intimate aspects of our lives. And that ends up, really changing the quality of life that we ultimately end up having. And of course, having that happen at scale is quite devastating for um, just the, the emotional stability of the society, which of course then leads people to think of other things to do um, with their resentment or their envy or their frustration with how things are happening in their intimate sphere. But so there's that. Uh, and on the other hand, I think there are people who this really woke them up. Um, and In what way? I mean, at least for me, when the, when the pandemic started, suddenly I was like, wow, it would be really nice to be married right now. <laughs> right. It would be nice to already uh, be married. Everyone's reconsidering. <laughs> yeah. It would single. be nice. But this would just have already been done. And not a situation where I realize how nice this would be. And now I'm in a position where I realize the significance of the, the uh, value of this institution without actually having any of the normal tools that I would have uh, to actually seek a marriage. Uh, and I, I think, I don't know how ubiquitous that is, but I do think that um, to me it was very obvious that when you have a crisis that happens and... It, that reveals fragility in your life, uh, that you would begin to see, oh, okay, traditional societies, right? They're like basically, you know, a um, amalgamation of 
social technology that allows for people to weather through difficult things. Um, I mean, that's kind of what keeps keeps you going. That's what keeps civilization going. That's what keeps people going is having social structures that aren't based on uh, periods of times that are rare, like abundance and stability, but rather are rooted in getting through times that are difficult, where there is scarcity and there is um, challenge in the society. And obviously we're facing those things. And it's at least very obvious to me (laughs) that um, there's value in these social structures that for the last few decades in particular, at least from what I've witnessed, you know, in my lifetime, but also just coming from like the post-war era in the United States, we've just been, you know, attempting to unravel all of these um, historical, you know, this traditional or, um, yeah, structures of, of life and marriage. Yeah, I would say in particular, the institution of marriage has been derided as um, kind of just uh, something of convention, uh, like an artifact of history um, that can be done away with and is largely just kind of oppressive and stifling. Um, And I think, you know, I've had a similar experience of, especially during the pandemic, realizing that um, there were a lot of lifestyles that people were choosing because things were kind of easy. Um, And the pandemic, especially, and, and, you know, it ties into other areas, not just marriage, but also like the importance of family, the importance of being connected to a community more, um, that a lot of people were just taking for granted or had assumed were, uh, cultural inheritances that could just be slawed off, um, without any real consequence to themselves. And so I think you're absolutely right on that point that it did, it did reveal a lot of fragility. Um, I personally had the experience of during the pandemic or during, I guess, this period of lockdowns of developing like uh, a crush on someone who I had never met in person before, who I only know online. And that was strange to experience for the first time because I didn't really, you know, I I was already like a pretty online person before all this started, but I didn't really um, have any kind of Uh, I don't know if you'd call if the appropriate word would be like parasocial relationships or anything like that. Um, And it's not quite that there is some mutual connection, but uh, I I had not thought of myself as someone who would ever really be interested in that very much. You know, I've always preferred in-person dating over online and, uh, and, and yet in the middle of the pandemic, like when you're not going out and you're not meeting anybody uh, you, you've got like your friends on Twitter and, and those end up being the people that you're talking to every day. And so it, it really, you do really start to get a sense of a development of a sense of a, that there is some kind of intimacy there, but I, I'm always questioning whether or not it, it can be real and to what extent the, you know, the virtual reality that we're living in more and more as we spend more of our time online, uh, is comparable to real experience. Like what's missing there that's not happening. If I was say talking to this person in person, uh, and, uh, what, what might I not know or what I might, what might I think differently about them if we were forced or, or just by circumstance able to spend time together, uh, in person. So that's been an interesting question that I've been trying to tease out on my own. 
Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I had a similar experience actually, and it, it was very, very interesting. I like you mostly, I mean, have met people in my life and that's, you know, that's the way I've, I've formed my intimate bonds primarily. And I noticed that there was a, you know, an ability to connect without having other types of inform, let's say information, a crude way of putting it, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, information that you're getting from a person. And, um, uh, my correspondence involved a lot of talking on the phone and I felt like there was something very particularly interesting about forming an idea of somebody merely by the sound of their voice uh, on a phone call and actually how much that can resonate, how much that could actually tell you about someone, um, even just subtle things like the timbre of their voice or the way that they say things, um, the kinds of words that they use and, and silence, like even the presence of certain kinds of silence. And to me, I think that there's something very e kind of eerie about it because um, <laughs> it's like a strange type of presence that's disembodied. Uh, mm -hmm. And yet it's also a presence. It, it is a presence. It's not some sort of, um, you know, false reality. It is a true type of, um, yeah, kind of an ethereal connection. I also found that when I was reading text messages and I was texting with this person, their voice was very, um, like almost loud in my mind or in my head. Like it was, it, it the kind of communication that was occurring was, uh, very implicit and very, um, idiosyncratic and it communicated a lot of emotion even though it was just, you know, these very small types of, of gestures or words. And I don't really know what to make of it. Like from a phenomenological standpoint, I'm just kind of like still struck by how unusual it is, like, and how different it is, but also how much emotion can be caught in that, uh, that experience of meeting somebody purely in a, in a virtual environment and only having access to kind of these uh, particular ways or channels of communication with them. And then what you carry with you when you move away from your device and you think of that person, what do you have? You know, what is it? You have their the sense of their voice. You have a sense of your bond to them. But what is that really? Um, it's very ghostly. Like to me, it's like a very bizarre experience. Um, it feels to me almost like thinking of someone who you love to as a guide you know, and you have their presence with you, but you know, you know, you know that they're no longer present. Um, mm. that's like the closest thing that I have in my own experience that it, it really accounts for that type of situation, but both the, the sense of certainty about the bond, the sense of, um, like the realness of the bond, but also the sense of like disembodiment and the absence of, of, of presence. Uh, so I, yeah, I get you. It's super weird. <laughs> it's so weird. Yeah. I, uh, I originally was doing these podcasts, uh, without any video and mm -hmm. I wouldn't have the video on during the calls. And when I started, I was actually doing them inside of a dark closet. So oh I would God. sit there in the dark and just have headphones on and listening to my guests. And it was this, I had a, 
it was similar in the way that you described the disembodiment and just sort of having this voice in your head. Mm -hmm. And I would really try to focus in on exactly what they were saying. And all that would be going on in my head was that I was just sort of experiencing this projection of their consciousness. Um, and, and that sounds very similar to what, what goes on when you're not really involved in like any part of the, I guess, physical reality of, of experiencing someone. Uh, so when I asked you to come on, you messaged me and said, Hey, maybe we should talk about this whole, uh, monogamy, non-monogamy situation, which is of course like a very popular topic, uh, on Twitter, or at least in our spheres of Twitter, where there's like lots of, um, uh, sort of like, you know, intellectuals and pseudo intellectuals and, um, we, we talk specifically about the, the rationalists and the post-rationalist communities, which are sort of into these kinds of questions. Um, and in light of the fact that um, we both seem to be reconsidering the value of marriage in light of the recent events, what are your thoughts on monogamy and non-monogamy? Um, I know you have a biological background, so I'd like to know both from a, a biological standpoint and also just from your own personal position. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, um, my own personal position has been one of definitely exploring and being interested in polyamory for, for, for years. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of that was, was bound in some sort of like dispositional characteristics that I had not being particularly, um, phased, I guess, by, by sexual jealousy. Um, and even there being like maybe even a kind of eroticism, uh, based in like the voyeurism essentially of the idea of another, of another person being with a partner of mine. Mm -hmm. And, uh, then also just my own, you know, being one who is professionally in love, just having a lot of, (laughs) having a lot of love to give and, um, not really, actually for me, not, not really even having containment structures for, for dealing with those feelings in a, um, discerning way is, is what I would say. Um, so the, the thing about polyamory, I, I think is I've, I've realized that it's, it's very energy intensive and that it's also fragile as a structure and especially with COVID, uh, I think that the, the realizing that you can't depend on the good times um, and that these other structures actually have something uh, to, to give to people. And, and also we're defined, we're defined by the investments that we make. We're defined by the, the things that we decide to do at the cost of doing other types of things. So the polyamory thing, I think there's lots of different ways to psychoanalyze uh, the dynamics going on. There's there there are actually some ways in which I think it is adaptive for certain groups of people to assume a polyamorous structure and or circumstances. Yeah, their circumstances um, may actually work with the polyamorous structure. It may be a response to an environmental condition 
and I think in that sense, it's uh, I, I understand the adaptability of that structure. Uh, for example, you know, you don't have to deal with the same kinds of loss if you break up with a partner because you have another partner. <laughs> you just go and see your other partner. And you don't have to deal with the same kind of um, loneliness, uh, absence. And I think in a time where we're all searching for community and we don't really uh, want to sit through periods of time where we're in isolation because we've just lost a partner that we spent, you know, most of our time with, it makes sense in some way to um, be responding to that through these polyamorous mating and dating structures, particularly if the prospect of children isn't really uh, something that people are interested in, which is, of course, more and more the case. Um, there are some polyamorous people who have children, but the non-monogamous, like, category is so broad. It's talking about so many different kinds of relationship structures. And I think that what we're seeing now is because of the traditional understanding of marriage, like down in the traditional path of, you know, going to, going to college, let's say, finding a husband or a wife, getting married, and then starting your careers, married, settled, and going from that point, having children, we're just been in the process of rewriting that script. And so we're seeing lots of different experiments and some of them are, you know, I would consider to be better than others in terms of how they're working with um, creating stable structures or creating more human flourishing, let's say. I think that mm -hmm. there's been a process of things kind of careening to the lowest common denominator, which is a kind of veiled promiscuity um, it's like, oh, I'm non-monogamous. Well, it's like, mm, you're just promiscuous. Let's, <laughs> let's just like, be honest. And, and non-committal. And... <laughs> yeah, you're non-committal. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you want to do. You don't want to make a commitment to one person because then you can't make, you know, you can't play around with somebody else. And the non-committal thing is much broader than in relationships, although um, you can see it very clearly in those dynamics, but it's also in and where people live or uh, what people are doing with their time or what people think a meaningful career might be, uh, whether or not to go back to school, like all of these things feel like no one, no one knows what they're doing, really. No one knows where they're going. Um, and it's, it's only through like this kind of process of cultural mimesis that we get a sense of where we should be going not because there's some sort of authority anymore that's telling us what to do, what's a good life. Uh, it's it's more just like, ah, my peer group is doing this. Right, so I'll just cats. do what they're doing. Um, which I question. I'm like, what I'm I'm 25. Mm -hmm. I look back on myself as a, like a 20 year old and my sense of conviction and, you know, my sense of, you know, I was doing the right thing. And I am just like, it's, it was just so ignorant. You know, there's so much that I've learned just in the next, last five years that indicate to me how much my, my view of reality was constrained by my own, um, narcissism, I would say my own sense of world being like, very egocentric and it's it's only through experience in the world 
and the humbling of your ego that you realize that other people who are older than you actually do know things that you don't know and actually (laughs) understand the depth of the world in a much more nuanced um, way. And if we're, I mean, we have just tremendous youth culture, glorification of, of young people, a peer driven culture. And I think that we're seeing the implications of that. Uh, lots of incredibly intelligent people who could be wildly capable, who could be contributing to creating a flourishing society. And instead they're just spinning their wheels because they have nowhere to direct, um, this, the capacity that they have to create something greater. And I, I mean, I think that there's a huge opportunity cost there, but it, it, you know, ultimately it is a kind of coordination problem and, uh, we have to decide ourselves that we want to do something else. And that's, that's a process of starting from, you know, the one or the at, you know, the atomized self and trying to build structures and relationships I uh, I just finished reading Christopher Lash's uh, The Culture of Narcissism. Nice. And it's exa- about exactly this problem of the atomization that it creates and the incentives uh, that are not only just cultural but also economic um, that lead to this kind of uh, almost lifelong adolescence. Uh, and it's not just in our generation. I'm I'm in the millennial generation. I think you're like right at the edge. Mm-hmm. Uh, being a little bit younger, but, uh, the, even with the boomers, there's a sense that they never really grew up, that they're still sort of keeping their options open. Um, you know, I mean, I personally didn't come from anything like what you would call a traditional family structure. Uh, my parents were never married and they were quite young when they, when I was born. And so like, uh, to me, it seems like, even the idea that like, oh, we're rebelling against these stiff, um, you know, cultural arrangements, uh, to, to me seems like an outdated concept. Like we're still living in like it's 1968 or something. Yeah. And, and like the sexual revolution, it just never ended. It just keeps going on for like 50 years. Uh, yeah. whereas I, I do feel like there is a sense that the preceding generations, the Gen X, it started with Gen X who were sort of like the first divorce generation and now it's moved into the millennials and into Gen Z, which is sort of starting to have some kind of a reaction to it, um, are starting to realize that there were some mistakes made or at least some things that were carelessly thrown away that we should maybe reconsider, uh, the value of one of the things that I find interesting about the polyamorous discussion. So I followed, um, Jeffrey Miller for a while. And, uh, obviously he's been a big proponent of non-monogamy and wanting to normalize it more and make it more acceptable and and mostly just getting rid of the stigma surrounding it. Um, it doesn't seem to me like he's making a lot of arguments for, uh, different kinds of legalistic structures, although I'm sure he'd be in favor of those as well. Uh, but mostly just sort of removing the stigma and kind of allowing the people that want to live these kinds of lifestyles to do so and to not be judged for it. Um, and, but one of the things that I, I object to when I hear him talk about it, obviously you're not an exponent of him, but, uh, just in, in getting through on this topic is he talks about the criteria that are necessary in order for 
in his opinion, for these polyamorous relationships to work. And primarily they are uh, basically having a high IQ, being very conscientious. Uh, and then, of course, there's a certain level of emotional maturity that he feels is, is required as well in order to deal with things like, you know, like the jealousy and so forth. Um, and when I hear that list of, of criteria, obviously those are debatable to what extent you need them. I think that like, for example, if you're not a working professional, if you're sort of just a young college kid living in a more communal environment, it can be a little bit different, but then it's like a question of like, well, how serious are you being, uh, for him, it's more like, uh, with him and his partner, who's now his wife, uh, it was more like they were high level professionals, college professors who were trying to have this lifestyle in a way that made sense within their, um, existing obligations. Um, but that involved also a lot of traveling and obviously a lot of expenses. To me, it seems like it's also quite financially like resource intensive beyond just your, your time and emotional energy. It's also just expensive period to be dating multiple people at once. Um, but when I hear that list of criteria, okay, it's like high IQ, high conscientious, uh, very like emotionally stable, basically non-neurotic. Uh, and I'm starting to think, well, that's actually like a pretty extreme personality at this point. Like when we're starting to really get down at like who this would be a good fit for and who would be able to like sort of pull this off in a sustainable manner. And it seems to me like the problem with arguing that it should be more normalized is that the people who are interested in it and the people that could actually pull it off are actually just a really small minority of the population. Um, and so I don't, I don't get exactly what the deal is with wanting to push it as like a cultural norm, uh, when, when he's already acknowledging, and obviously, you know, I'm not expecting you to make his argument for him, but when he's already acknowledging that there's this sort of very narrow kind of personality type that it would actually fit within. Yeah. Well, I, I think that the normalization, um, move that people seem to be making all over the place, especially when it comes to sexual, um, or gender issues, uh, normalize this, normalize that, uh, is really talked about as if there's no cost to normalization, as if it's just prejudice that people have, that it isn't already normalized. It's already been decided by this group that it's perfectly ethical. Uh, so the normalization process is, is almost, um, it's, it's like a, it's a truth of some kind, you know, it like must happen, <laughs> you know, it's like definitive that it must happen because this is, this is ethical and society is wrong. Society is wrong for stigmatizing things. Like an angry two-year-old. And people, yeah, and people are prejudiced, you know, that's why. And I mean, I, I just think that that really obfuscates the purpose of taboo, the purpose of stigma, um, the purpose of there being rules that are held by the culture rather than by the state, let's say. Um, that, I mean, this, the culture can hold norms. And if people follow the norms, you don't need a written law in order to, uh, formalize the, you know, the, the protection of some sort of right. It's just the way in which people behave to one another. And to degrade the norms of a society has all sorts of second order, third order effects that are unpredictable. And I think one of the, one of the ways of seeing the world that I'm particularly interested in 
is through Girard's mimetic theory. Mm-hmm. And when you have a normalization process occur, you end up with people mimicking those types of social structures more than they would if it wasn't normalized. Who maybe because, shouldn't be. And maybe who shouldn't be. If, if, if we take it that polyamory is a very functional relationship structure for a small minority of the population, and they're just trying to um, you know, normalize it so that they can live in peace, but their process of normalizing it makes it something that other people then consider because it's a low cost. It's low cost. There obviously are advantages. You get to sleep with whoever, you know, uh, you, you get to sleep with more than one person. Let's say it's not necessarily whoever you want to, but um, whoever will have you. Yeah. Or whatever the arrangement might be. Right? Sure. You, you, you get to be um, unrestrained. Mm in the way that a, a monogamous pair bond uh, would, would basically force you to be. There's obviously an upside to that, especially to somebody maybe who's young or maybe who's high status. And they actually have a lot of uh, sexual opportunities that are being um, thrown their way. And they probably want to take them. And the idea of having to maintain some sort of archaic bond of, of chastity to some you know specific person is... Um, a, a cost. But then when you think about it on the scale of the society, what happens when people start mimicking behaviors that are not good for them? <laughs> um, I mean, you end up with a lot of people who are generally uh, confused and unhappy and inflicting harm on themselves. You know, and I, I, I think that that's that's one of the things that people like Jeffrey Miller and Robin Hansen, I mean, he's done a lot of work on this, studying self-deception, studying how much we, we don't seek information that would help us make rational decisions, but instead we obfuscate for, for ourselves. Uh, we turn to authority. You know, if you like Jeffrey Miller, you should, you, you'll, maybe you'll do what Jeffrey Miller likes, you know, uh, because you know, he's an authority. And, and so the, the, that process kind of ricocheting throughout a whole society where everybody's just looking at what, what, you know, who the influencer is and doing what they do, um, is just total, it's just total chaos. It's not really an organized culture. It's just a, you know, birds kind of flying in a flock and trying to, you know, match the movement of the other birds. It's, it's not super sophisticated to me. Um, it could lead to sophisticated structures in the future, right? There's a massive exploration that's going on right now. Um, and obviously culture goes through a process of filtration. So you, you end up with, you know, subcultures, cults that practice certain types of things. And over time, um, the structures that have some sort of pragmatic truth to them, not an, like a philosophical truth or a scientific truth per se, but a pragmatic truth for them tend to win out. Um, you know, monogamy was doing quite well for quite a long time. And I mean, there's a reason for that. And it's not like people were only seeing, you know, only sleeping with their wives. It, it's this, the story of monogamy, I think is largely misunderstood. And a lot of that has to do with literally with the diamond industry wanting to, uh, get people to buy 
expensive engagement rings and the, you know, the advertising involved in, in making that happen and creating a mar- creating a market for diamonds, you know? So it's like, the divorce. <laughs> to be, is that it? Yeah. The notions that we have about what monogamy is or what a marriage is, I think are, they're also very like short lived mm. cultural phenomenons and, looking into the history of marriage and why it arose in the first place, what kind of evolutionary roles it's playing in terms of organizing mating systems. Uh, I think that that's much more of the deeper conversation to be having about marriage and um, mating structure in society. And, you know, I don't really know. For, for me, the advice that I give to people is know yourself. Don't do something that doesn't work for you. And that's going to require you to really do some interrogation, you know, into your own world and real, like being able to recognize like, oh, I admire this person. This person's polyamorous. It seems to work for them, but I'm not like that. I'm actually not one of these rare people that has these rare characteristics. So I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to have that. I'm not going to have that relationship structure. And that's perfectly fine. Or, I mean, even if you do happen to be one of these people, um, you don't even, you don't have to also think that polyamory is the best relationship structure. Like it, it's, it's really, is a, it is a debate. Um, it's not for everyone. I think it really only works for a small portion of people and it really depends on what your values are in other domains. Like Mm. if that's really what matters, ultimately, I think when we're trying to think about what what relationship structures um, ought a society as a whole be supporting and normalizing, let's say. Right. Well, so one of the things you talked about there briefly was the, I mean, you were sort of getting at it, but you didn't mention it specifically, uh, at least in that last point, was uh, social media, right? And and mm-hmm. the, the way in which it's sort of reconfiguring how we imitate one another where we get our values from. And, uh, and and you're correct there that there is kind of no authority. There's sort of these uh, existing structures uh, where authority was previously vested in and that still have some semblance of it, but they're increasingly uh, kind of in their death throes. They're sort of fighting tooth and claw to maintain that authority and maintain an authoritative position uh, within this, uh, within very all the social networks. Uh, mm-hmm. whereas what's, what's really happening is that increasingly individuals, uh, as well as new institutions, but largely individuals are becoming various kinds of authority by virtue of the fact that they have a lot of attention, uh, and that they are good at acquiring that attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and this creates some very, very interesting dynamics as you would know from your, um, understanding of evolution, that there's going to be some winner take all type dynamics, um, different kinds of power law distributions that come from, uh, basically lowering the walls on everything, just as you would get with globalized trade. Uh, whenever you bring down all of the barriers, you actually increase the inequality in that, whatever the domain is. Um, and one of the offshoots of that, that I think is potentially dangerous and destabilizing on a 
sociological level beyond just the breakdown of sort of traditional family structures and marriage and whatever benefits that might confer to offspring Mm -hmm. is the inequality in terms of relationships and mate choices, Mm -hmm. Um, particularly when you're dealing with what's increasingly and and it's probably going to accelerate even further, uh, a large number of men, single men, particularly younger men who have very few or almost or no um, mate choices available. And especially with, I would say, the rise of influencer culture, you're going to get even more uh, high status men who have almost all of the choices available. Uh, This is a topic that I've covered with other guests before in some of my previous episodes. But what do you think that arrangement is going, how how do you think that arrangement is going to affect things and do you think that there are going to be solutions to it? Because in a lot of the more traditionalist um, online political spheres, there is this sort of call to uh, return to some, something like an oppressive uh, institution of, of marriage or of like single pair bonding uh, in order to sort of alleviate what they see as like a, a threat of uh, having a, a large mass of unmarriageable men, basically. Yeah. I mean, yes, societies with these dynamics are tend to be more violent, um, as you could just, it's just pretty obvious, <laughs> like, what kind of dynamics that would create. Um, they exist, for example, in intense places like the Middle East, for example, yeah. has a lot of these dynamics. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you end up, yeah, with a less stability in society overall, more inequality, um, and just more general violence and less freedom of movement in that case. Um, a lot of the things that we in the West prize and, and take for granted. Well, you know, it's interesting because there's other things going on right now as well in terms of mating and dating, like the decrease in fertility uh, rates. I guess I'm in that case, I mean, both the fact that people themselves are becoming less fertile, um, but also the, the rate of um, reproduction is going down. Also, the self-reporting of uh, non-straight, uh, you know, sexual proclivities has gone up as well. So bisexuality or, or gay, being gay, um, which, of course, are also structures that don't they're, they're not reproductive. Um, they're, you know, you can adopt a child, but you can't produce a child from that arrangement. Uh, and so there's other types of things that are going on with humans and c- civilization and reproduction that are quite interesting I don't really think that as of right now, there's a very good explanation for why this happens. Like, why is it that we reach certain levels of abundance or certain levels of population density and then we stop reproducing at the same rates? It's a curious Mm -hmm. phenomenon. Um, So I think that there's lots of things going on and we can, you know, we can try and create a dotted line around a certain phenomena and attempt to understand it from, from those specific variables. But of course these systems are, are, are open and there are other influences that are coming in. One of the other influences, um, of course is 
technology itself, um, the creation of sex bots, the creation of platforms like OnlyFans, AI girlfriends, um, the proliferation. <laughs> They're coming, guys. Don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> and, you know, the, pro- the proliferation of um, these kind of transactional forms of, of sexual or intimate engagement, um, which can also come in to, uh, to take the place what, of what would normally be a population of people who are seeking seeking mates and seeking uh, to replicate their genes and foster a new generation. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you have the antinatalists who, you know, don't think that we should be reproducing at all. And this is very much an antinatalist uh, type of orientation, right? Either just by incident, if not by value. Um, so... Yeah, the dynamics here in this particular moment of history are, are, I think, unusual just because we have technology interfering with our sexuality in such a deep way. Whereas other periods of time in history, you know, if you were a man who was being frozen out of reproductive opportunity, you didn't really have, you had the option of prostitutes, you had the option of raiding another place to find it, but uh, you didn't have a sex spot as an, as an option you didn't have going on uh, OnlyFans as an option. So certainly we have different um, different dynamics going on in this, and it'll be really interesting to see. I think part of the, you know, the trad, the return thing is a larger um, frustration with how technology is making us impotent generally. Um, it's I think a lot of it is wanting to protect the virility of men um, mm-hmm. and seeing men... Um, you know, giving themselves over to these addictive cycles feels like an undermining of, yeah, like maybe even the institution of masculinity. Um, because, you know, in the past, you'd end up with an angry group of men, and it's not like we don't have that. We do, but how do men, how do they, how are they expressing it? Oh, they go online and they write posts. It's like, okay, well, that's your problem, basically. <laughs> like, you're not making it a problem for anybody else, really, besides the fact that you have a subculture that's oriented around this particular grievance. Um, whereas in, in other times, you know, men would find each other. They didn't have anything, you know, uh, holding them down, holding them back, a family they had to provide for, you know, um, any of those things. And they would just go off and get, you know, get into trouble. And I don't know, like the fact that we're doing so much of our social uh, interaction online and there, I mean, there are status implications if you get, let's say you get your account removed or something like that, but, um, it's different. I would, I would wager to say that it's different. It has different things going on. Um, and it's important for us to not collapse, uh, the, the trends of the past and just, extrapolate or expect the same types of things to happen in our own circumstance. Um, even if on some very high levels, we can see that there are patterns, um, mirrored in this time and other, other times in history. Um, but yeah, I don't know what, what else was, Oh, the other thing I was going to say is, um, the, the way in which, um, polyamory or non-monogamy, um, impacts men is pretty obvious, but the way in which it impacts women is not as much talked about uh, from what I've noticed. And the way that I think about 
marriage and monogamous marriage is it's a truce between different demographics um, because men well, with high status in society were able to collect wives as a representation of their wealth, so as as property. And the, the way that that gave them um, the, the value of wealth was the fact that there was a scarcity, right? You know, you're the man who has all the wives and the rest of the men don't. But even within the structure of being within a harem, like let's imagine you're, sure. you know, one of many women that your uh, that your husband mm-hmm. um, is uh, housing. You know, there's a lot of stuff that happens within that dynamic that is very uh, disruptive to to women, mm-hmm. and um, there's all sorts of rivalrous dynamics that go on between between women who are in the same harem. Um, who want the attention of of the of the husband who's having to split all of his resources between these groups, and it ends up being um, rivalrous between the you know the the the, the, the oldest wife or the, or the like the most um, the wife who's been around the longest first and one. the first wife and um, the younger wives because the younger wives come into a situation where they don't have a lot of power. Oftentimes they're very, they're quite young, um, and they're easily manipulated, um, or controlled by the first wife. And she has every interest in, in controlling, um, the rest of these, of their, um, the wives and their reproduction, how much they have sex with, um, her, her husband, how many kids there are, you know, it, the whole thing. And of course, right. Like, I don't know. Those kids are are treated, which ones get you know, more benefits. Yes, exactly. How they're treated and how much resources that you end up getting. And, you know, of course, I I think most people in polyamorous relationships are not thinking about, you know, polygyny, (laughs) like um, being one of 10 wives and there's, there's one, there's one husband, but that's the kind of thing that, especially if we change the legal structure could become much more ubiquitous. Certainly we have enough rich, tech people, um, who would have enough resources to be able to provide for many, many wives and, uh, would maybe want to have many, many children. And, you know, it's a certain way of organizing people. Um, it's very good for, if you have an ideology or a religion, it's great for increasing the population. Um, I mean, I think that that's a lot of why Mormons, for example, um, or even the Israelites or the old patriarchs, like, why do you have many wives? Well, if you're trying to populate uh, your particular uh, religious uh, beliefs, the womb is the bottleneck. You can only have as many children as you have wombs. And so the more wives you have, the, the more babies you can be making and the more people who follow your ideology or religion. So if you're thinking about replication of a certain type of thought structure, um, those structures, that mating system makes sense on that level. Um, so yeah, this, it's, you know, it's a really, it really is particular to whatever ambition any given person has. If you want to be the leader of a cult, you know, polygamy might be good for you. Right. Um, <laughs> If you have such ambitions, it's probably not, not a bad structure for you. Um, and if you're living in a, in a society where community is hard to come by, your high IQ, 
you're like, nobody really wants to have kids. Everyone's living in communal houses and there's a, you know, a lot of care given to building social structures and people want to hang out in cuddle puddles all the time, then maybe polyamory would work really well for you. Um, but I mean, in my situation personally, on some level, I'm like, why are we so fascinated with, 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 with sex all the time, like sex and relationships? Like, aren't there other things that we should be doing? Like, aren't we dealing with a climate crisis? Aren't, aren't we dealing with like a, a, a disease? Like, aren't we, aren't we dealing with political collapse? Um, are, you know, aren't we dealing with like hypercapitalism and atomization? Like what, what about actually taking on the burden of keeping civilization happening? Um, that well, takes a lot of time and energy, <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> so I don't know. Well, I would just say in particular with regard to the reproduction question and even how to best uh, what what environment would be optimal for raising children? You know, the whole point of dealing with those problems so that we have a civilization to preserve is under the assumption that there will be more people later. Yeah. Um, so it's important not to fall into, in my opinion, an anti-natalist trap there and assume that, for example, climate change uh, is such a dire problem that we have to stop you know, reproducing all of a sudden. Okay. Because it's like, well, what are we saving the planet for? The people that won't be here? Um, totally. Yeah. I, I think I, I agree. I'm not, I mean, I'm a, I'm a natalist for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, a, I'm, I'm definitely a natalist. I'm not going to ask you how many kids you want to have. Unless you <laughs> already know. Um, so one of the things that you brought up there, um, was that obviously like in times past, there were more, um, rudimentary ways of dealing with this problem of having lots of, I mean, I'm glad that you brought up the female perspective on that. Um, cause that's not something that's been talked about, uh, as much for sure. Um, but, uh, those rudimentary solutions like, Oh, we're going to band together and like form a, a group of raiders or something and go steal people from a neighboring village or go take over some other land. Obviously those options aren't available, uh, because largely most of the known world is basically fenced in, right? You have enclosed space. And so increasingly the actual, even the concept of a frontier is kind of foreign to us. Uh, we think of frontiers as something that are sort of gone now, except maybe in a few corners of, of the Amazon, um, and, you know, desolate places on earth where really there aren't any humans. Uh, and then outside of that, it's really just like space, right? Like every young guy is a huge fan of Elon Musk. Why? Because he wants to colonize Mars and that's the new frontier. And I think every young boy imagines themselves at one time or another as a kind of explorer, as somebody who would go out and find uh, a new territory and establish something for themselves there. Uh, and I think that there is a sense with young men in particular, that we are kind of living in a kind of fenced in world. And a lot of the frustration, uh, that comes from them and that gets, um, sublimated in different ways comes from the sense of, uh, 
of impotence that you were talking about, of this inability to sort of change the circumstances that are around you. And I was also wondering is whether or not the substitutes that you talked about for real intimacy, such as, um, you know, OnlyFans or like sex dolls, I, I've, I'm highly skeptical. I know that in places like Japan, where they're a little bit further along this road, yeah. um, that it's become more socially acceptable and more well-known as a as various kinds of solution. They also have a different kind of history with prostitution, for example, there than we do in the West. Um, but I'm very skeptical that those kinds of solutions are genuine solutions that will improve well-being or even flourishing and not continue to exacerbate the sense that young men have of, of being, um, of losing, of losing, um, of losing virility, right. Of losing their vitality. Because when you're using these artificial means to express this very powerful force, which is your sexual energy. And that's literally the thing that has continued to keep the human race going for hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, it, it, it does feel like when you're engaging with those kinds of, whether it be platforms or people or even just with yourself, some kind of a dead end activity Mm -hmm. that you're really just dissipating, you're dissipating your energies and you're Mm -hmm. doing it because you don't really know what else to do with it. Um, and so I'm very skeptical of the idea that these substitutes will actually provide men with real meaning in their lives, with a real way to feel better about themselves, to feel connected. I, I, I don't think that there is such a substitute, uh, that there is going to be a sufficient substitute, even with an, you know, an AI sex bot or something um, that will replace having a real genuine human yeah. connection and building something with somebody. Because yeah. I think the relationship, the romantic component and, and the having a, a life with someone that you're going to share with someone is also important as well beyond just physical satisfaction. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that's true. But like it ultimately, it's it's not about actually replacing the the, the intimacy of a real relationship. So it's about people who basically have nothing better. Right. Mm-hmm. It just has to be a little bit better than where you're already at to be a, con- a good consumer product. So um, we're, <laughs> which is unfortunate. We're, we're ranking them in the in the realm of the condemned. Right. That That's exactly it. Yes. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that that's. My read is that this is just. Um, th- these are the symptoms of a society in a in a certainly in some sort of collapse situation. Um, it doesn't, uh, regardless of whether or not, let's say prostitution is immoral or like evil or dirty or whatever the, you know, um, the, the language of the social stigma, the fact that we're seeing so many women in a situation where prostitution makes sense for them. To me, that's, that's a sign that something's gone wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, same thing goes with a bunch of men who are being frozen out of reproductive opportunity also a sign that something has gone wrong and what that is exactly i mean it's it's obviously a confluence of factors and whether or not we can reverse it once it starts to happen is another thing that i um that is up up for debate i mean 
there's the there's the authoritarians right who see the problem they understand it to be related to these um to the core of what it is to be human which is like to be a member of a species and to keep that species generating itself into the future i mean that is ultimately as a living organism our basic impulse and our basic duty to the continuation of our of our genes and the solution for the authoritarian is well we got to we got to top down organized society we need a theocracy you know we need to you know bring back these old structures um i think for those of us who are less authoritarian in our um our proclivities it's all about uh to me it's about exit you know it's about getting out of the mimetic haze uh and really figuring out what your own personal convictions are and deciding that you're going to do things um of your own volition of your own will and becoming comfortable with the fact that you're not mimicking other people it's very it's very hard and because there's no institute there's no authority um there's no status in being let's say pious or religious or um traditional there's there's no clout you're going to get for that maybe except for in these like specific subcultures online right um and so you have to take on a kind of social cost and you have to learn how to stand as your own entity surrounded by people who are not doing those things. And in some cases actually attacking you doing those things. Um, but I, I think that that's the responsibility that we have if we're interested in, in living this way, if we're interested in living a different way than the way that we're being nudged to, um, by the intervention of, of, of applications and, and other forms of technology in our lives. We, and that, I don't know, maybe that's my, that's like my personal stance. I don't know if I would, um, I don't know how feasible that is for people. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's dark. It's, it's, it's a dark situation. Um, and I do think there's something that I've seen in the manosphere, which has been mm -hmm. actually influential for me. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm familiar with many aspects of the manosphere, so we can talk about it. Yeah, I mean, the manosphere is, uh, is great, besides the places that where it's you know unnecessarily misogynistic, but um, which is more manosphere. Just a lot of it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it, it really depends on like depends what on what you're is. what you're talking about, right? Yeah. If you're just talking about the way that women are, which women don't like it when men talk about it, um, the way that women are, then I would not consider that to be misogynistic. Uh, in fact, that's more of like a red pill situation where you're like, oh, wow, women have this kind of psychological proclivity and they really don't like it when it's pointed out. Mm -hmm. You're going to end up with people who are you know, angry uh, with you and maybe will call you a misogynist, but that really doesn't well, make you a misogynist. Well, opinion. some men can't really handle that either, right? So it's not just the, the women don't like yeah. it. Some of the men get really embittered and jaded when they discover these, I don't know if you can call them truths, but evolutionary tendencies and differences yes. between the sexes. And they feel yeah. like they've lied to. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Um, there's all sorts of ways in which people react, right, um, to these things being revealed. Uh, 
and the asymmetries between the sexes, I think, is something that we're trying to contend with. Um, and people are jumping off, you know, into different camps as it relates to this central object, which is, yeah, these, these just inextricable asymmetries. Like, we just can't get rid of them. We, we will never be able to get rid of them. Um, even though we're trying. We're really trying to. And we're trying to, like, gaslight and people into thinking that men and women are, are are exactly the same. Not true. So when it comes to the manosphere, like I learned a lot about this stuff um, from the fact that people in the manosphere were discussing these things, frankly. Um, real, and I began to realize, okay, wow, there, there are these asymmetries and these differences between men and women. And I'm a woman. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. I'm a woman. Wow. Okay. That means certain types of things. Literally, I had not gotten that education. I had I was not told by my mom, oh, you know, Raven, you're a woman. You're like, and I'm a human. I'm a human. And a human is essentially a man, right? Like I'm a, I can yeah. essentially just be a man and, and I'm not going to have any problems. Mm-hmm. Well, hmm, not really. I mean, it's, it's not that simple. And it, so, I mean, I, when when people are living in, in re- realities realities that are not true or not real or not pragmatically true, then you end up with all of these weird behaviors. Um, and unfortunately, enough people are all kind of inside of the shared delusion that they can actually get along pretty well. You know that there's a there's kind of these other ricocheting effects to it, and who knows what this is going to look like when we're in a couple generations with this. Um, like how many children of the, is the millennial generation going to end up having? How many bitter? Not very many, I would say. Yeah, exactly. Um, how many bitter old people are we going to get? They're going to they're going to give us life extensions, so we'll live to be like 130, but we'll like hate ourselves because we never did the things in our lives that we wanted to. You know. Well, Anna Anna Hachian says that the millennial generation her her dire prediction for the millennials is that they'll end up like the lost generation of Russians who came Mm. uh, during the bulk of the Soviet years. And well, more or less, that was a generation that drank themselves to death. Um, Ah. There was a high levels of alcoholism, high levels of suicide. Suicide. And very few of them had, had children or if they did, they still died young anyway. Um, And she has a very um, negative prospect for where she thinks the millennials are headed in, in late, late life. I hope we'll get past that. I'm, I'm hoping that a lot of the prosperity that can be generated from the internet, for example, uh, as sort of the, the new, the new printing press will, uh, will offset some of that. But of course, many of those gains are going to be concentrated in a very small number of individuals, but there's a long tail. We're part of the long tail. That's what we're doing here. Yeah. We're part of the long tail. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, I mean, I think she's, the, yeah, she's, I think she might be right about something like that happening. It's, yeah, I mean, this, this happens. I mean, that's the thing. When social forms dissolve, you, people end up lost, lost for meaning, um, lost for direction, and they're more likely to fall into addictive dynamics um, and self, you know, destructive dynamics. And I mean, kind of going back to the manosphere thing, I mean, what attracted me to it was 
these were these were groups of people who were obviously trying to not fall into those traps, get themselves out of those traps, thinking about where the traps are, pointing them out to each other and saying like, okay, don't go in that one. Don't go in that one. You need to do these things instead. Go get exercise, call your mother, you know, whatever it is. Um, become someone who a woman would want to date, mm-hmm. you know, and do that not because you're doing it for her, but do it for your brother's. And I think that that's a really important thing, um, because when you look at like the psychology and the dynamics between men and women, you know, women are choosing the the men from the men who have chosen among themselves who are the best men. And if a man is trying to make himself in the image of what a woman wants, there's it actually messes up, messes up the dynamics. You know, men are supposed to compete among themselves they they form compete like competitive structures that are very external, very obvious. Um, men also tend to be like interested in reducing cheating, right? So they end up with you know almost a kind of legal structure, rules of the game um, that mean that there's actually someone who they can agree on at the end is the winner. Mm-hmm. And you know women are looking to see okay who's the winner of this game. Like I think. This- I think about musicians a lot, like how sexy musicians are to women. I'm like, okay, well, why is that? Well, you can see that the signal is real. You can watch a musician play the drums. Mm -hmm. You can see him and how well he's playing the drums. It cannot be fake. You can't fake that signal. It's clear to you. And the fact that he's in a group, let's say mostly for musicians, mostly of other men, it's like, okay, well, he's accepted by this group of men. They're all making this thing together. And he's clearly capable in this particular domain yeah. and that's sexy. Like it's, it, well, it and there's, is. <laughs> there's also high, high levels of social proof, right? Yes. So like if you're in a, if you're a musician or you're in a band and lots of people are showing up, well, that means yep. you're also, um, Popular. you're also looked up to literally by men mm-hmm. and women and other women, which is also important. Yep. Um, yep. that yep. other women are interested in you as well. Oh yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Now I remember learning about, um, how, you know, it's just a, you know, a psychologically uh, studied phenomenon that women find men that other women have shown interested in more attractive. And I had just discovered that in my own personal life, right? When like a woman, another woman like came on to the, the, you know, the guy I was dating, I was like, suddenly I was like, oh, wow, (laughs) my my partner looks so much more attractive now. (laughs) I got a good one. Like, oh, good, I got a good one. So, yeah, women are also looking to other women for this approval of their of the mate that they've selected. And that's um, mimetic as well. That's mimetic as well. And, and so there's, you know, there's all these ways in which we're kind of making decisions and then looking, looking to make sure that we've made the best one. Um, and society, I mean, there have been, Humans haven't changed that much, okay? Like, so our traditional society has figured some stuff out for how to make these systems work pretty well for people, mm. even if even if they didn't create like perfectly liberated individual subjects who would all find their own unique frontier and take on the world and never need governments and never you know have to deal with any kind of obligation. Um, they didn't do that, but they did make people who were able to move seamlessly between different 
eras of human development. And that's essentially the task. That's the gift that you can be given by your culture is an intact way of moving through the different eras within a human life. Each of those transition points, you know, from from being pregnant, you know, to being in in utero, to being born, um, from being on the breast to being eating solid food, from being a, a child to becoming an adolescent, from being an adolescent to becoming an adult, from becoming an adult to becoming uh, reproductive. And from that point, the process of aging for women, obviously menopause. Uh, for men, they have a whole different trajectory. Um, all of those junctions are moments where there's a high amount of possibility for something to go wrong, <laughs> uh, especially like, you know, things that we can remember adolescence is like this period of time that's marked by chaos and uncertainty and, um, a lot of weird behavior and, um, like trying to find your place within a group and it can either go really well for you or really terribly for you. And, but either way, it's going to imprint deeply on who you end up becoming for the rest of your life. Um, and if you grow up in a society that is intact in a culture that is intact, there's often moments of ritual that mark these transitions that allow for you to be initiated for, so that there's some container, there's some structure. So you're not just flailing trying to figure it out yourself and making a lot of mistakes along the way. Um, mistakes, while you may not, you know, be totally to blame for them in some sense, they still weigh on your conscience if there were bad consequences. I mean, I think in some senses that like moral structures and, you know, rituals within society, they're actually helping you they're offering you the opportunity to not feel guilt and shame for having done things that hurt people. And when you don't have those structures, when you don't live a moral life, you end up hurting people either inadvertently, you know, because you're poly and you want to sleep with lots of people and those people that you're sleeping with get attached to you, but you are not very attached to them. And so you end up inadvertently hurting them, but you're poly. So you can, it's okay. It's fine for you to do that, right? And it's like, well, is it? Is it really okay? Do you, are you actually okay with that? Are you okay with the fact that you're just like going one by one, like breaking all of these hearts? Um, maybe there, maybe that speaks to something else with you, right? That, <laughs> that you're not like you're not empathetically involved with the people that who are empathetically involved with you, mm -hmm. and. I mean, that's just a particular example and, a, you know, a bit of a straw man in some sense, because that's just a stereotype of a kind of polyamorous person. But I don't know. I guess as I get older, I realize that um, when I behave in ways that hurt other people, um, I have to I carry I carry that with me. Well, my conscience and it's it is a kind of karmic burden. Uh, it's a kind of suffering. And because I don't believe I don't have a God, I don't have a religion. There's no way for me to cleanse myself. I'm like, where do I, where do I go to be forgiven? Like the most I can do is say, well, you know, Raven, you didn't have all the information. You were young, you were naive, blah, blah, blah. But does that really get 
those last little pieces of, uh, of guilt and shame that sit with you when you know you've done something wrong, it, it, it's not sufficient. You can't really, um, fully in, in an internal way, uh, forgive yourself completely. It's, it's like we want something outside of ourselves, uh, some sort of authority to say, you know, you are forgiven. You are clean now and you can go and live in the world without carrying this, this burden. Um, I don't know. And that's like, maybe that's getting in a weird territory, but, um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I mean, I don't come from any kind of religious structure and I've always been very anti, um, against organized religion. Um, but I definitely feel like there's not sufficient frameworks that have been developed yet to replace a lot of the things that religion as a technology provided, mm-hmm. um, for people, uh, atonement being one of them, right? So how do you atone for what you've done to other people? I think even, uh, knowing that you hurt yourself, for example, can be something that stays with you for a long time. It can be hard to get over. Um, and it's true that, uh, outside of religious language and religious structures, we don't have very good ways of processing yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'd be curious, why, well, what are your major um, critiques of organized religion? So I've just never belonged to a, a church in any meaningful sense. Um, my, well, so I'll just make it personal here, since you're asking me a personal question. Uh, my, my father is uh, Jewish, mm-hmm. and my mother is uh, Protestant, but not really religious at all. And so growing up, Uh, as I said earlier, my parents weren't together. Uh, and so I didn't really have any kind of, you know, structural religious upbringing. And then on top of that, I was always very intellectually curious and quite open. So the idea of abiding by a religious structure always was pretty repulsive to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and I hated going to church the few times that we did. Uh, there were a few years where we would sort of go and then not go. It was a lot, very on and off type thing. Um, and so I guess temperamentally, I'm just sort of not really, I don't really jive with organized religion that well. It's mm-hmm. hard for me to accept, uh, a lot of the, well, I mean, besides just like metaphysical objections, mm-hmm. it, it's hard for me to accept a lot of the philosophical, um, philosophical conceits that you have to make in order to belong to an organized religion that has a solid structure. And then, um, so, so those would be the main reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, but as I've gotten older, I've gained more of an appreciation for it. Uh, certainly than I was younger, certainly more than many of my friends have. Most of my friends are still sort of devout atheists, I would say. And, and they sort of deride organized religion and think of it as a silly thing that is sort of archaic and oppressive and, uh, doesn't do any good. And, you know, sort of the Bill Maher, oh, the world would just be better without it type thing. And uh, I've certainly come around really over the last five years, especially, uh, and seen that there's a lot that we left behind when we just sort of carelessly mm-hmm. threw it out. But I don't know. And especially, I think, because I don't have the religious context in my background, I don't really know how it is that 
one would go about trying to reenter it. You know, one of the things that I've been thinking about, especially with regard to this marriage question, is just that at a certain point in your life, you do have to just make a commitment to certain things. And you have to commit to a career path. You have to commit to uh, a partner if that's what you want to have. And I think religion is similar to that in the sense that at a certain point, you have to commit to a kind of belief strict system to um, to stratify your your world and to make okay. it through. Uh, I'm personally am committedly non-ideological, for example. So I really like to try to stay as much as possible in this sort of liminal space when thinking about things. And I resist the temptation to fall into different kinds of ideological camps. But there's a penalty to that, which is that there's a sort of um, you, you, you sort of remain mercurial. There's a certain type of um, development that doesn't take place when you refuse to make sacrifices uh, on certain things. And so I'm unclear at, at this point in my life whether or not there is such a thing as staying truly non-ideological. Um, or maybe the ideology that I follow in practice is just not something that I've articulated yet. I don't mm -hmm. know. But uh, and, and I, I feel like religion is the same way. Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe it would be better for me to just, I don't know, convert to some religion. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, some people say, look, if you need an organized religion in your life, well, that just means you're like a weak person. You just like don't want to have to think about things too hard. Uh, and I can see that argument, but I'm not sure that that's exactly the case. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure that even someone that grows up in society and has all of these mimetic cues from the people around them can fully differentiate right from wrong and find what it is that they should be doing without committing to some kind of structure. And the yeah. thing is, the organized religions that we have are evolved mim mimetic complexes, yeah. mimetic here, not mimetic, um, meaning that they have adapted over hundreds or thousands of years. Uh, and there, there's a reason they're still around and it's because they have to be, in my opinion, they have to be useful in some way to the people that, uh, abide by them. And so I'm undecided on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, um, I think that there's actually something, the way that secular people look at religion, I think is very much on the level of like what the, what the belief, what the, what the ideas are. Right. It's, it's like, OK, well, what do these people believe? Well, they believe in a patriarchal God figure. Right. It's like all omnipotent and, and and like I believe in the resurrection of Christ. What What is this? Like what is wearing this mixed threads, you know, what what is going on here? Um, and I I think that, you know, for most people, like there's this there's this kind of truism that Catholics don't read the Bible. <laughs> Catholics don't read the Bible, right? Like, what what do they know, like, about what's actually happening in terms of the esoteric understanding of Christianity, right? Like, you know, they have maybe a general understanding of of like what their priest kind of indicates to them about what's going on within within the rules of the Catholic Church. But even then, like, if you go to a traditional mass, it's done in Latin. And what do you what do you know about what's going on? You know, so. I mean, I think that it's it's easy for us, particularly if you're an intellectual, to to take it at this face value. I think there's a Protestant influence here. Um, Protestants are uh, known for their kind of literal interpretation of the Bible. Um, there, you know, there are Protestants who only read the Bible. This is the only thing that they read, thing that they live by. 
And uh, that really does change the way in which I think people in the West who've been so influenced uh, in, in the Anglosphere by Protestantism, by its relationship to, to religion, um, that it's, it's the one way in which we kind of imagine a religious life to be. But as I've been learning, I've started reading the Bible over the summer because I realized once I got over my stigma, basically, that I had against religion, I realized that this text was just so important for all, like so much of the thought in Western philosophy. I was like art and literature and everywhere, everything. Right. Um, And I wanted to have a direct very Protestant of me, I'll admit, I wanted to have a direct experience with this text and, you know, derive my own conclusions about what's happening in it. And I mean, it's a fascinating book to read. It's, um, it's got a lot of really interesting insight into civilization, for example, the rise and fall of, of civilizations and, um, what it means basically to go against God's laws particularly in the Old Testament. I mean, it's like every single story is, you know, the Israelites like either sticking to God's laws when everyone else around them is not and being, you know, uh, being saved uh, or being favored by, by God or they they're become corrupted and then the wrath of God comes down upon them. A vengeful but, God. <laughs> the vengeful God. Um, and... Then you know you get into the new the New Testament and the story of Jesus, and it's it's super fascinating. Um, and then of course I've also been influenced by Gerard and his interpretation of Christianity, specifically um, the revealing of the scapegoat mechanism and the knowledge that seems to be within the text of of mimetic desire of mimesis uh, and the. For me, what that reveals is that um, actually there's a lot of different ways in which people approach religious practice. And whether or not it's an intellectual interest for you is actually different than whether or not you follow the calendar. And I think this is something that's obscured from the secular vantage point, the calendar of which you live your life. We just use the basic pragmatic calendar 12 months in a year you know i guess 28 to 31 days in a month there's some holidays we we live by the work week right very protestant once again um, but you know in if you are adhering to a religion even if you don't accept the spiritual aspects of it even if you don't accept the intellectual aspects of it Totally. And most of history, people didn't like most history. Well, people most didn't of read. history, they couldn't read. Yeah, exactly. They didn't read. Right. Like they were living Nobody their lives. Nobody knew what was in it. No. Yeah. The they were, exactly. You know, you're living by the laws mm-hmm. um, because that's, what, you know, that's what's holding the society together. But what, are, what do laws do? They hold, they move people in certain ways. It's like the rules of a game. If you change a a rule in chess, like let's say instead of the knight making the L shape, it it can go it can move three spaces up and that's it. Like that changes the movement of the game. So if you change the rules, the movement of the population changes. You change a calendar, the movement of the population changes. And a religious calendar, I think, is actually the thing that people 
they don't know that they're they're missing it, but they are. It is the it's actually the calendar. It's not necessarily a belief in God. It's the calendar itself. And so what, wait, hold on. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you to clarify. So are you talking about the pattern of behavior within the context of a calendar? Or well, that the calendar compels creates yeah. a pattern of behavior. Mm-hmm. So for example, um, Lent is coming up um, in February, and it's 40 days. That's supposed to be a um, a living through the story of Jesus Christ when he takes 40 days and he's in the desert. So for those 40 days, you give up things. Different churches have different rules, but uh, you know, in the in the Eastern Orthodox Church, you give up you give up fish, you give up meat, you give up dairy, um, you fast, you give up sex or alcohol. You can you know you abstain. And you atone and you go through this process of essentially creating a world in which you are in the desert. So you are, you are living through the life of someone. Um, in the Jewish tradition, you live through the tribe, you live through the story of the Israelites. And over the course of, you know, I think it's about two years, you know, you go through the whole Torah, right? So you're reliving these tales, it's like performance. It's like, it's like performance art. It's like, it's like a living kind of theater. And the thing about going into the desert, especially for people who are like, you know, spiritual leaning or a mystical leaning, we can, you can understand on a metaphorical level, what that might actually give you in terms of insight into your life, into the things that you value. Um, the, the capacity to remove yourself from, from vice, from addictive aspects of your, of your day-to-day life and actually just change your circumstances for a period of time in coordination with your whole community, not alone, not just by yourself in your, in your room, in your house, but actually in a calendar with other people. And not only in that temporal world of that specific year, that specific time, but also through history. Everyone of this faith does this thing in the calendar at this time. And that extends all the way back because it's an unbroken tradition. And I think that it's the coordination, it's the, it's the connection to history. It's the, it's the living through the lives of people of, of significance, of saintly or, you know, kind of mythical significance that people are actually missing when they're not being religious. A lot of people say, like, this is, I don't know, a lot of people are, like, spiritual, not religious. Mm. I think that misses the point, personally. I mean, I think it's actually the religion the other way around. part. It's the other way around. <laughs> it's to me, at least. Um, and that's the way I've been thinking about it, that like, I'm actually attempting to try and understand the religious instead of emphasizing the spiritual and recognizing that there, there are people who've been going to, to church um, and have been worshiping who hold, you know, the specifics of the religion itself very loosely, very loosely. You know, they don't, they're not like necessarily dogmatic about their religious beliefs. Um, it's, you know, and so it's not necessarily about, 
yeah, the metaphysics it's, itself. And, you know, with a, with a religion like Christianity, actually the metaphysics is highly malleable, super malleable for a religion. Like, um, you can really go in a lot of different directions with, with Christianity that you can't go in other religious, um, structures. So even if you do have an intellectual interest, there's actually a lot of places that you can, that you can take it. Um, but you know, you don't need to accept a creator God. I certainly don't. I don't, I don't accept a creator God, but I am interested in the idea that there is another kind of God that might exist. Um, which is basically the God that is what people create. Um, and I don't know. So those are, those are kind of my exploration of religion. Um, and the calendar being the key thing here that does not get emphasized nearly enough in my opinion. Yeah. Well, it's sort of like having skin in the game, right? The difference between theory and practice, you can sit around meditating all day and say that you're a spiritual person. Um, and maybe that will bring some kind of, uh, inner peace or satisfaction. Uh, but it's not quite the same. I mean, I guess your meditation practice could also become a real, uh, life pattern that also has reverberating effects. But the point being that, uh, beyond just an intellectual exercise, there is something to be had in the aesthetic experience and in the quality of going through these traditions. And like you said, doing so in community. And I think that's one of the things that we're missing a lot these days that we can think about, uh, trying to bring, bring from religion or maybe in, be involved in as through, through a religion, uh, to try to fight some of this atomization. Yeah. Oh, Raven, right. it's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> uh, I think, I, I think we got enough for, for a little while. We could go on for hours and hours about this. Um, I, there's so oh, many cool. things that you said that I'd, I'd like to pull on later, but, uh, one last thing before I let you go here, um, mm-hmm. If there's something that you could leave for the people listening to think about with regard to this central word, that's a very slippery word, like, like God, it means sort of different things to different people. The word is love. Mm. What would you say? I'm not exactly sure what this means, but it's something that I heard that resonates with me. It's by a philosopher, Horace Landry. He says that love is that which enables choice. Love is that which enables choice. And I think that there's uh, a lot to be meditated on with that statement. And love is something that, you know, we feel between each other and in in terms of a bond, you know, a a real physical, familial, romantic or friendship bond. But love is also, in a sense, a kind of abstraction. Um, it's It's a thing that can be fostered on the level of community. Mm on the level of maybe we dare say a civilization, um, maybe love as non-rivalry. So, and uh, Christians, 
traditional Christians have, have a lot to say about love <laughs> and martyrdom, actually. Um, but I would say, yeah, to, to sit with that, to sit with love is that which enables choice. And to place those bonds, even if you don't feel love in them all the time, but the bonds of family, the bonds of the closest friends that you have, of your romantic bonds at the center of your moral concern. And if, I mean, in, in my case, in my person, in my life, I can speak to this. Like if, when you don't do that, it weighs with you. It, it just, it's, it's something that if you don't live by those bonds and what's good for them, it's leaves you with guilt and shame. <laughs> All right. So choose to love everyone. Have a good night guys. Thanks Raven. This is absolutely yeah. a pleasure. Thank you.